just before we start the show, I want to take an opportunity to invite you to join me for the Podfluence Weekly Newsletter, which is available both on LinkedIn and through the official newsletter channel. Now, if you are on LinkedIn and it's easier for you to follow there, then please just click on the link in the show notes, which will take you straight to Podfluence on LinkedIn, where you can subscribe for free and get weekly updates on Podfluence articles as well as episodes. If you would like to subscribe to the full newsletter where you'll get additional materials and, as my little incentive to you, my pre-podcast guest checklist for you to use when you're appearing on podcast shows so that you can be fully prepared every single time, then please click the link to the official newsletter in the show notes. Hope to see you there. Let's get on with the show. Welcome to episode 100 of Speaking Influence. What a journey it has been getting here. And I am going to be putting out a show next week, which is going to be me reflecting on 100 episodes, all the different people I've spoken to, some of the changes of direction that the show has made, although nothing that major, and some of the things I've learned on my journey into podcasting. When I was thinking about what I would want to do for my 100th episode, I thought a clip show might be a good idea, highlight some of those older shows. But then I encountered somebody in a clubhouse room that was about ketogenic diet, strangely enough. But I noticed that his profile, when he was speaking, talked about him being a professor of rhetoric. I tracked him down on Facebook, as I want to do as a podcaster, and contacted him and told him about my show and asked if he might be interested in coming and talking to me. He has his own podcast, which is all about rhetoric, and I've listened to some episodes. It's really interesting, and I honestly thought, who better to have on a show about influence and persuasion skills on any platform than a professor of rhetoric, who is also, at times, a stand-up comedian, and a number of other things in his life as well, some of which he'll tell us about in this show. His name is Dan French, and he's the perfect guest to mark 100 episodes of Speaking Influence with. As we hit this 100 show mark, I know that this is really a point at which many podcasts tend to start growing much bigger as people realize, hey, this guy's serious about his show and his podcast. And I guess that's true for me as well. And the feedback that I now get from people who tune into the show telling me that they really love it, they love my passion for what I talk about, and that we have some really fun conversations from time to time as well, and also some serious and useful conversations too, and that they love the kinds of guests that I'm getting on the show. Well, I hope that's true for you as well. However, if you would like to support the show financially, you'll find our Supercast page in the show notes and you can just buy me a coffee for the month for five bucks. Helps to support the show, helps me be able to improve the quality of the show. Hopefully at some point it's going to allow me to batch out some of the work involved in the show so that I can do more of this kind of thing without having to spend all the time editing and making. That's up to you. There's membership levels too, and I'm releasing new courses and programs on the Present Influence website as well. If you want to check any of that out or take my quiz to find out how persuasive you are, visit presentinfluence.com. You'll find everything you need there. Let me know how persuasive are you. 
For the meantime, I want you to enjoy this 100th episode of Speaking Influence with my guest, Dan French. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Speaking Influence, the show that explores the psychology and application of ethical influence and persuasion in life and business with persuasive presenting and podcasting expert, Johnny Ball. If you have an online business, you need to work on list building. The easiest way to get started for free is ConvertKit. It's recommended by industry pros like Pat Flynn, Chris Ducker, and our very own Johnny Ball. Click the link in the show notes and start building your list today. Welcome to Speaking Influence. What I want to explain before we get started is, as a speaker, as someone who does a lot of coaching and speaking, and someone who has a really deep fascination with persuasion and public speaking skills, it amazes me that it took me so long to ever hear about rhetoric and the art of rhetoric as a persuasion skill, as a tool of persuasion. And when I did, it's like, oh my goodness, there's this whole thing here. And I didn't even know it was there. And it's a whole big field of study. Loads of people do learn about it. It tends to be more applied in legal and political arenas than anywhere else. But as a speaker, as a presenter, you should know about this. And if you don't, then this can be your introduction to the art of rhetoric as we speak with a rhetoric professor, a doctor of rhetoric. His name is Dan French, and he has a podcast which is called Rhetoric Warriors. He has a new book out, which is The 21 Colosseums of Persuasion. I've been checking it out. It is pretty darn good. And I know you're going to love this conversation here. If you are interested in persuasion skills and if you are unfamiliar with rhetoric and you think, well, this could be interesting, or perhaps you do know a bit about it and you would like a bit of a refresher course, you are in the right place. Welcome to the show, Dan French. It's great to be speaking with you. Thank you for joining us today. Hey, John, how's it going? It's going really well. And I have been so much looking forward to this conversation because this is the first time I've had a professor of rhetoric on my show. And I can't believe it's the first time, but I have had a political speech writer. He was great. And I know the people who enjoyed that show, which is my most downloaded show so far, are also going to enjoy this show as well. So Dan, please, for the benefit of our audience, please tell us what you do. What is a rhetoric professor? So, uh, real quick background. I don't know. What do you want to know? Rhetoric? Or do you want to my one of my entry into rhetoric? Let's let's start with what rhetoric is, and then perhaps tell us where you first uh, discovered it and your interest in that came from. My simplest definition of rhetoric: it's the art of highly designed messaging. I usually set up two poles here. About there are people that are expressive, and there are people that are rhetorical. And expressive people tend to not work on their messaging before they say it. Like most people don't even know what's going to come out of their mouth before they say it. They hear it at the exact same time that their listeners hear it. And right. those are expressive people. And especially those who you know, like to do natural communication, supposedly natural communication, expressive communication is valorized as that's the way you should talk. Rhetoricians never let a message out before they work on it. It's literally highly designed messaging so that you want more control. And it's especially used when the stakes are high, when it's a very important situation, when it costs a lot of money in business to get a, a message out, when there's political effects on the line. And religion is high use of rhetoric. So there's a lot of use of rhetoric in very high stakes environments. So that's the first thing is just it's a distinction between sort of natural flowing communication versus practiced, performed, scripted, designed communication. Okay. 
And it goes all the way back. This has been studied since the Greeks. The trivium was grammar, rhetoric, and why do I always forget the third one? Grammar, rhetoric, and something. But you had to take these before you could take the rest of the courses. Rhetoric for the Greeks started when they start when with the courts, and they started to study why some people were winning and other people weren't. And they grammar, logic, and rhetoric. Why do I forget logic? I literally have a <laughs> seminar on logic. Anyway, so they were studying the courts how people argued in courts. And they were seeing that some people won, even if they were guilty, some people lost, even if they were innocent, so on and so on. And they would abstract the techniques and then sell those as instruction. And that was the sophists. That's where the word sophistication came from. It was a school of study of techniques. And then Aristotle and Plato jumped in and were like, there's ethics in here. And should you persuade people this way? And it became a thing. And so it's been around for 2,500 years. They've been studying persuasion in public for 2,500 years. The reason why people don't know rhetoric as an academic area is because in the Middle Ages, the church got really upset with the idea of having to persuade people to believe uh, in God. And they took rhetoric out of the curriculum. And it didn't come back up until you start getting the Reformation and you start getting teaching like in advertising and marketing and pub- publicity, pub- all that stuff is baby rhetoric. It's just coming back up within new fields. And, and is that because when, when you understand rhetoric that you are armed against it as well? You can um, dismiss it more. You, you understand what's being what's being done. Yeah, rhetoric's both an offensive tool. So it's a way of getting a message out into the world in an effective way. And it's defense. You can also take other messages down. You can depower other messages. And my thing, rhetoric warriors that I started is essentially one of the taglines. It's the the power of ethical only persuasion. And that's because I'm always pushing rhetoric to do the good things in the world and to fight the bad things in the world. And that's why ethics gets swept up so much into rhetoric. Right. And that's what Aristotle wanted it for, right? He said it could be a, a tool for revealing the truth and putting good things out into the world. And I think it was Plato, perhaps, who was a bit more skeptical of that. You got him backwards. Plato that's was right. the okay. idealist and, and Aristotle was the pragmatician. So Aristotle was <laughs> like, it can go either way, but you should understand it no matter what. And Plato was more of ideals for the Republic, uh, a collection of the best people making the best choices because they have the best information. So, yeah. Uh, I think I was basing that on some, something I read, but I, I got it wrong. But luckily for me, I'm not a, a professor of rhetoric, otherwise that would be very embarrassing. But it's been great to be uh, put straight on that. I think what's what I'd really like to get into then is where you first encountered rhetoric and, and what your interest was in that. So I've never been, I'm not a classical rhetorical scholar. Like I don't study the Greeks or the Romans. That's not really my thing or even the middle, middle-aged uh a lot of really smart people from the church were writing about things like public messaging. But I studied pop culture and entertainment. So rhetoric can study any message for how is it effective once it's out in the world? How is it designed? What is it doing to people? And so it's literally the study of any type of public messaging. And even it goes down to private messaging, too. I was a pop culture and story person. So I ended up teaching TV writing and film writing, screenwriting. Because I looked at how do you abstract what like mainstream American film has a very strong structure that's been developed over 100 years 
of actually creating those types of stories. And when I taught screenwriting, I would abstract out the mainstream American film format. And I'd be like, here it is, follow the pattern and you can be a screenwriter. And then the students would all be like, I don't like following patterns. I'm like, <laughs> sorry, rhetoric doesn't go away just because you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I had, uh, I guess, on the show a while back, a guy called Matthew Dix, who I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he's won like the Moth Story Slam in the US like, multiple times, I think, maybe very close to <laughs> more than 50 times now. I'm talking about storytelling. And, and he's saying, like, once you understand the structure of this, the stories are kind of all the same. You can predict the films, you know where it's going to go. And just once you understand the storytelling structure, you kind of have to switch that part of yourself off if you want to enjoy and be surprised by films anymore. And I guess you're saying a, a similar kind of thing here as well. Well, essentially, there's formal rhetoric, and it has this massive history and set of techniques and things you can study. But there's also informal rhetoric. Like, that is a rhetorician. He's a story-based rhetorician. Like, the moth, it's just like TED Talks. They develop very strong structures, and they repeat them over and over again because they work. I don't know if you've noticed, but like if you watch TED Talks, they all sound almost exactly alike. Yeah, there's a structure. They all, they all have the same beat. They have the same performance. They have the same tones. It drives me crazy at a certain point because it's gotten <laughs> so patterned that it's not interesting anymore. Yeah, and that's we can probably, yeah. Uh, yeah. As I said, we can probably thank all the people who are out there training TED Talks because they probably watched all the TED Talks and, and they're putting out all the stuff that makes it work, right? So they're teaching other people how to do it in that format. And therefore, the structure gets repeated and passed on and passed on. And when that's how everyone's doing it, that's how everyone does it, right? Well, and that's the dominant form of instruction in all rhetoric, all persuasion, all story structure, whatever. It's standard. It's learning standard practices and then repeating those. The problem with that is just like I have a marketing agency here in Austin and almost all marketing agencies and ad agencies basically do standard practices and they may be very good at it. But if you bring in a new Band-Aid type of Band-Aid to sell, they're going to put it into the system like this is how we sell Band-Aids. And it's going to be little kids and their hurt elbows. and But, oh, the Band-Aid makes them feel better. Because it's been standardized as a standard practice type of messaging. What yeah. rhetoricians do is come in and they say they see that and they're like, hey, we can get more uh, success if we interrupt that pattern. If we add something new. If we do something different with that pattern. And rhetoricians are super aware of things like standard practices. And they try not to just use that because it, it loses its power if that's all you're doing. On the other hand, if you do it really well, it's accepted by the culture. The culture is what right. they expect. Yeah, so the norms, it doesn't go too far away from people's expectations for sure. One of the things that first got me interested in, in rhetoric, and I've always, I say always, but probably for the last 20 years or so, I've been fascinated by influence and persuasion. There was, there was a book I came across. It was, a, it was a guy called Mark Joyner, if you've ever heard of him. He wrote a book called Mind Control Marketing. And I just found it really interesting that there were all these hidden persuasion tools, these ways of getting people to, to buy stuff, to follow a certain path that you don't know are being used on you on a day-to-day. And, and Cialdini talks about it, and there are some very popular names who talk about influence and persuasion, although it tends to be, again, within very specific kind of elements. And I, I've tried with this show to explore a lot of different aspects of that. And that's one of the reasons why I was particularly keen to talk to you, because we haven't really talked much about rhetoric on this show. But I really want to, because I, the more I read about it, the more I think people should know this. People should know 
what rhetoric is because especially when it's in so much political messaging and right now we have so much going on politically that we don't always recognize what's being used and i know you have a very strong kind of stance on rhetoric and and politics as well and you like to try and challenge perhaps more conservative opinions based on using rhetoric and conversation. I'll challenge any strong opinion set just because it doesn't matter if it's on the right or the left, just the right is dominant right now in a lot of ways with, with unethical rhetoric. Like the problem isn't what you believe. You can believe whatever you want. It's fine with me. The problem is the process of getting there. Did you follow, did your side follow an ethical pathway or an unethical pathway? And if you followed an unethical pathway to get people to vote for you or to believe what you want them to believe, then that needs to be fought. That needs to be taken out of the system because unethical rhetoric, while powerful, has effects. And so what I do with conservatism is take people back. I don't care. Like You can tell me like Anthony Fauci has a red tail and is purposefully giving coronavirus to everybody all by himself. He's the, like, great. So let's go back into process and show me why he's the devil. Take me through it. And so this is why I was saying, like, my second book is on logic, because what's happening is people can't go back into their own process and trace it. Like, they just jump out to conclusion. And they can't sit in process because it's so screwed up. They're so untrained in it. And it's been so skewed by the right-wing media and the right-wing infrastructure that you can't go back and even clean up their thought process. And that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. The same thing. Millennials, like millennials get over-triggered and they jump to conclusions. They won't go back to look at evidence or subtlety or nuance in what somebody has says. So they just judge. And again, that's an issue. That's the council culture thing, right? Kind of. Cancel culture itself is a little piece of rhetoric that's just, it's a rhetoric soccer ball. Like that term, every once in a while, you're getting a new term about every week or two now that's jumping up. It's got a little bit of juice and a critical race theory. And they'll kick it back and forth for a while and then it'll go away. Because it can only have, every soccer ball only has so much energy in the media. Once you hear it too many times, it loses its energy. One of the things that I found fascinating when I first started reading and learning about rhetoric, and I didn't really understand perhaps quite how it fitted at first, was about logical fallacies and cognitive dissonance and, and biases and things like that. And the more I started to understand, the more I recognized it. But it is important to know that stuff for making rhetoric work. You talked about logic a few times, but I think, again, most people probably don't know what logical fallacies even are, same as most people probably haven't heard of rhetoric unless they've had a certain kind of education. Yeah, most people don't even know what logic is. They've heard the word and they think they know what it is, but they don't know what it is. If you ever go back and actually study real logic, you'll want to stick your head in the sand for a month because it's so tedious. Like mathematical logic and propositions and propositional logic is so tedious. Yeah, yeah. And When I try to teach logic, like even just moving back into the surface structures that keep logic together, like I mentioned just there, like a conclusion is at the end of logic. You don't start with a conclusion in logic. You start with a proposition or even before that, you start with, you know, a question. 
And so if we ask the question, is Tony Fauci credible? Is he reliable? Can we trust him? That's where you start a logical process. You don't end it with, you can't trust Tony Fauci. Guy changes his mind all the time. Hmm. Like, no, you just ruined logic. Now we have to go back at the beginning and move our way through it. And because we're used to consumption thinking, like speed thinking from many topics with horrible information being dumped in there, we, we just reject logic entirely. And so yeah. if you go back and get in training in rhetoric, you're going to get some training in logic. You're going to get some training in uh, argument. You're going to get training in story. That's why the book is called 21 Coliseums, because every one of those is a strong area of persuasion that you need to be trained in if you're going to be a master rhetorician, because you have to understand, oh, I'm losing here in logic. I'm going to jump over to relationship. Like, I can't convince you with words or logical thought. So I'm going to create a good relationship with you. And if I can make that strong enough, then I can go back later over to logic and I can start taking you through that a little bit. Yeah. Do you think that the same processes that you come to believe something with have to be the same processes that you maybe can be disabused by? Or, or is it really following a different path that's going to help people to change their minds on things? Change, like going in, you're talking going in and doing like retrieval or... Uh, if you, if you were looking to try and... Uh, lead somebody to like say someone has a very clearly wrong belief that they've been given perhaps they've been watching fox news a little bit too much and so it was fairly easily debunked what's the process really for helping them to helping them to debunk it to see the truth of it there's a really big difference in debunking something and changing somebody's brain like you can if, if somebody's off logic so sitting on here's one of the weird things about logic it looks like it's a real thing. It looks like it exists in the world. But you can overlay skewed logic right on top of it, and it looks almost exactly the same. And this is the big, big problem people are having right now. My second book is called Why America Can't Think, especially why the world can't think. But it's because skewed logic has been laid over top of regular logic. And once your brain can't distinguish between those, then you can't use rationality anymore to make your decisions. And you can't use rationality to pull somebody out of skewed logic. It's really hard. So mm -hmm. you have to move over to something else, something like story, you know, or ethos where I use my character, my leadership of you, the fact that you trust me to pull you out of something. Even like the way people deprogram people in cults, you have to get people away from the cult. You have to isolate them with people who are gonna talk rationally again. And slowly their brain will start to reorient but the human neurology will adjust constantly. And once it's adjusted over to something that's an extreme viewpoint, that's built through skewed logic, you have to sometimes do really extreme things to get their brain back to its original factory settings. And, and I guess there are times when that's not even possible where, where people manage to just stay, maybe stay ahead of that, or they're just so locked into a certain kind of way of thinking that they perhaps can't come out of it or don't want to come out of it. It doesn't matter whether they want to come out of it or not. Like you can bring people out of things. It's just repetition, really. The human brain will create new neurons and more fluid neurons, more used, more used pathways through repetition. So if I just say to you every day, John, that's a great beard you've got. 
Love your beard, man. If I just say that every day, your brain's going to start to expect it. That's going to grow in strength, you know, over time. And you'll be like, man, he really loves my beard. (laughs) And that's just going to start existing in your head as a thought pathway, whether you want it to or not. Like when I do, I do all sorts of things with conservative thought, but one is if you want to start people to move them off what you talk about, like where they get trapped into a thought pattern, you can use thought thorns, as I call them. So if you can put a little thorn, a little painful thought that goes against what they believe into their head so that it comes up when they're exposed to this stuff, it lowers the experience for them. For example, Fox News, which is clearly, if you understand propaganda, if you understand brainwashing techniques, things like this, they follow the techniques almost exactly. And they're very good at it. Okay, so it's not a news organization. It's a brain training organization. (laughs) Right. That's what they do. They train brains. They train them to be very highly emotionally triggered, to be conspiratorial. Because that's the the things they do over and over again. They sell these stories over and over again. So if I want to put a little thorn in there about Fox News, I'll say Fox News isn't even an American company. Like it's a foreign company. The guy who started it, Rupert Murdoch, is Australian. And then he became British. And then Ronald Reagan just tested him with a magic wand and made him American so that he could own a major network. Who else, what other country would we allow to have a major network, a fourth major network in America? Like if China had come over here or any Middle Eastern country and said, you know what? We want Al Jazeera to be the fourth network in America. It would never have worked. It only worked because Rupert Murdoch's white and because he mimicked all the news things that were already there. And we couldn't tell the difference between white people. They're white, I guess. They're just like Cronkite. (laughs) And so it's a foreign entity. It's a propaganda machine that we allowed to be in the middle of our country. Yeah. Why would we do that? Recently, there's been an attempt at a UK version of this, which they've called GB News, but it doesn't seem to be doing very well. And that's why I say, thankfully, it seems that one of their one of their key presenters has already left and their viewing figures are really low. Hopefully it stays that way and, and disappears pretty soon. But it's very much the same fallback. But we see that pop up a lot everywhere. But it is pretty dangerous, right? There's stuff in the world. We, we talk about like, eth- ethical persuasion, ethical influence, but there is so much of it out there now. And this is why I think it's so important that there was a mission. I feel like I'm on a mission to help enlighten other people whilst I'm on my journey of discovering more about influence and persuasion and helping people to understand it and apply it in more ethical ways that I hope I'm also helping to arm people against it being used on them or at least give them more of an opportunity to do that. And I feel that that's a, a really important part of my mission. And I, I sense that that's important for you as well. Uh, when you read the introduction to Cialdini's books. He talks about that being important to him as well. Uh, there's all these people out there who already know how to use this stuff against you. And probably they've figured it out. They don't have the ethics. Uh, they're stopping them from doing it. But most of us don't know how this stuff works and don't learn it. So I see it as a real tool of empowerment to have this. Yeah, I mean, that's the idea, right? There's only a few things you can do to clean up public discourse. You can try to eliminate nefarious people. Trump gets kicked off Twitter and Facebook and the world changes. 
the silence that broke out in America was insane. It was like four years of discord and suddenly it's quiet. Yeah. You can create laws or rules or practices to keep unethical persuaders out of your public discourse, which I encourage. Like everybody hides behind free speech as like, oh, it's just an open door to anybody. I'm like, if you ever thrown a party and a bunch of bikers show up, what do you do? Do you like, oh yeah, let the bikers in, your party's gonna be just fine? No, you make some rules. You put at least a velvet rope up. So you have to have some type of system that's more advanced than just, hey, it's free speech, they can say whatever they want. Well, no, they can't. Right. So that's one way is to make some rules for who gets in and doesn't get into your public discourse. And then secondly, to arm people so that they can see that stuff. The nice thing about OAN and Newsmax and GB is the one in uh, Great Britain coming along after Fox is Fox has already alerted everyone to this stuff being different. So there is some protection now, like the population has learned some stuff. When yeah. Fox first came out, there was no outcry about, hey, don't let this propaganda machine onto my network. And they hide behind, they use very specific techniques of masquerading and appropriation. Like their original uh, slogan of fair and balanced, that's a new slogan. And it's a complete lie. That is exactly the opposite of what they do. If they would have come out and said, hey, we are a propaganda organization. We are unbalanced. We are trying to sell this set of ideas to you. Then I would have probably been okay with it. Right. The problem is when they deny it's unethical to, you know, be non-transparent. And so they deny that they're this and they constantly are in denial. I'm like, nah. So if you train people, that's the second thing is get them to where they can see this stuff. And the third thing is like what you're doing. And this is what I do and why I started rhetoric warriors is we need a, like a, a guardians of the galaxy, but for, by rhetoricians. <laughs> Sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> I'm in. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll be the little here. raccoon guy. <laughs> They're highly funded. They're incredibly, you know, highly theoretical. They've got, they employ great writers and great artists. And the people on Fox News are amazing performers. It's too much for regular people to try to resist. So, yeah, yeah we need rhetorical, rhetorician, guardians of the galaxy. That's why I, I, I like, I like the word. That's why I called it that. Yeah, yeah, I like the sound of it. I like the sound of it. It definitely sounds like more. A lot of fun as well, rather than complex and deep stuff. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about education in rhetoric. I mean, perhaps it would be good to to explain some of the foundational principles of, of rhetoric there, sort of ethos, uh, pathos, and logos part of it for people who may not be too familiar with those. Do you mean, do I think it should be taught uh, in schools and stuff like that, or...? I guess it's like more, at least more commonly taught, even if it's at more higher education levels. But I think a lot of people don't get to come into contact with it in, in any way, shape or form, other than when it's being used and, and wouldn't necessarily recognize it. Yeah, it becomes a political issue within the educational ecosystem. Like English departments teach rhetoric, too. So... My degree is in speech communication. So it's in the speech tradition and rhetoric. And then there's a written tradition of rhetoric. And they use the same tools, the same argument tools and persuasion tools. So English departments own persuasive speaking or persuasive writing. And you'll get a little bit of that. Like when you take your basic English courses, you'll have to write essays that argue for things. Usually most people in college have to take a public speaking course. 
And that's a baby rhetoric course. Like, how do you create a good message so that it you know, has the right effects that you want? And usually you have to do some type of persuasive speech. Yeah. And you get a little bit of debate here and there in high schools. And some people take that. So there is a little bit of educational foundation in it. But again, like most schools have a rhetoric department. You just never hear about it. It's not one of the power departments on most campuses. Communication studies is more known than rhetoric, which is a subset of communication studies. I don't know. That was kind of my thing. Like I taught, I was a professor for 20 years and I taught 18 year olds about rhetoric. And then they're like, yeah, whatever. And they forget it and they go on with their lives. Right. And when I stopped teaching around 2000, I decided I had all this stuff. And it wasn't until Trump showed up, Mr. Rhetoric Viking, and broke politics like a big pinata. And I'm like, people need some of this stuff. So I move it over to like podcasts and books and online courses and things like that, because that is available now. Like podcasts, I think is an amazing way of distributing information. I have 20 interviews on my podcast of with hardcore rhetoricians. And if you just listen to those, they're an hour, hour, 15 minutes long. You're going to learn a lot about rhetoric. I have a friend who I went to grad school with, and she was in interpersonal communication. She sent me a note that said she had listened to all the episodes about rhetoric. And she's like, I learned way more uh, from these podcasts than I ever did in grad school. (laughs) Isn't that the way now? Yeah, yeah, because you can do so much more with them. It's a much more flexible learning tool. It seems to be that the audio format is becoming more and more popular with people. I think that we're going to see a lot more of it as well. Facebook's in on the act now and with podcasting and Netflix are making podcasts into TV shows and things like that. People are loving the format and a lot's coming out of it and also finding it's something that they can enjoy Anywhere, like I, I will listen to podcasts whilst I'm walking to my office and back or whilst I'm in the gym and because I'd rather have that on their music. And I think a lot of people are, are doing that kind of things on their commutes, in the car, audiobooks and podcasts. It's a very powerful format now. It seems to be becoming more and more popular, interestingly. Yeah, and I hope that's true. Like the Nazis uh, in 1930s gave out transistor radios to everybody, free transistor radios so that they could hear Hitler's speeches. So having some area or some easily accessed technology that could carry messaging to people is important. And podcasts, like they're, so I also have a big background in comedy and entertainment. I worked in Hollywood for a long time. And I, so I try to bring as much of that as I can to the podcast format to make it entertaining. But they're right-wing comedians who have podcasts. Yeah, but are they funny? Are they funny, Dan? (laughs) You know, it's really hard. I I wrote for Dennis Miller for a little while, who became a right-wing delegate. I I remember Dennis Miller, yeah. And he started out as a very liberal prince. He was the Jon Stewart of his day. And he moved over to become right-wing. And I used to say it's really hard to do comedy downward. Like, people just cringe when you take shots when either you glorify people who are clearly evil in power or you take shots at people who are clearly trying to do good stuff in the world. And he would do it all the time. So it's cringy to hear that stuff. But there are some good comics. There's a guy, Nick, what's his last name? Nick DiPaolo, who was a great club stand-up. I think he's lost his mind to the right, but he's still got all the club stand-up techniques 
even on his podcast. So it sounds like it should be funny. It's not always funny, but it sounds like it should be. <laughs> yeah, is it politics, but perhaps not really a left or right thing. But I think when you start getting into ideologies and perhaps a wrong, just clear wrong thinking, as you say, is it's hard to find that funny. It's hard to find things that are where, where someone's actually punching down or, or as you say, proclaiming some something as good that really isn't, then that's hard to find funny for sure. Now, I, I've had a lot of comedians, funny speakers and professional comedians on the show because I, I find comedy is a tool that doesn't get talked about that much as a tool of persuasion as a tool of influence. But I think it really is. It is actually a very powerful one that perhaps a lot of academia, I could be wrong on this, but you would maybe know better than I do, but a lot of academia seems to have missed it as a tool of influence and persuasion. What do you think? Well, I think it can be pulled over and used as a tool of influence and persuasion, but that's not its design. No. Comedy doesn't owe you any moral work. It doesn't owe society any, you know, advance. It doesn't owe anybody. It gets pulled over. And then once you pull it over into stuff like that, it changes the nature of the comedy. Comedy is just there to create laughs. That's the world, this whole circle, the whole enclosed space that is comedy. It's just laughs. It's trying to find entertainment value. If you pull it over and start making it do social good, political work, things like that, it breaks pretty quickly. Right. Like even like when I've seen John Stewart try to do actual politics and political events, it just falls flat. Yeah, you know, it's just not the nature of comedy, but it is it can be used in a lot of ways to do things with audiences that you know are powerful. And then you can slip persuasion and influence in there. I, I think that it's more I view it that when you're making people laugh, you, you become more influential. If people see you as someone who's funny and makes them laugh you are influential to them. You have almost in a power position to them to, to a degree, although they might not, hopefully they feel connected to you and related to you, but you have an influence over them. They see you as a particular kind of thing. And that does at least allow the opportunity to perhaps plant some seeds or challenge the status quo. Uh, and you certainly have seen throughout the years, people like John Stewart, people like Bill Hicks, people like, I guess people talk about Letty Bruce and guys are going quite far back there. George Carlin, perhaps a more recent uh, example, although he's no longer with us as well, but that it is a possibility to challenge, at least challenge the authority and um, challenge the status quo and get people thinking about things, even if you're not actually necessarily directly making a point. Yeah, it can definitely do all that. It just doesn't have to. I hear people who will jump on comedians about their bad morals or their bad, po and I'm like, it doesn't matter. Are they funny? Do they make you laugh? That's the end of the conversation in comedy. If they want to be a blend of comedian and social justice warrior or a seller of a social perspective or political perspective, that's fine. But it's, that's not really a comedian anymore. That's, that's at least a blend and it's a hard one to pull off. Yeah. You, know, you see guys like Hicks and stuff like that who are good at counterculture and punching upward and they can find some of that, but it, it runs out of gas pretty quickly. Like even Carlin, the last three or four specials Carlin did were more like an old dude grousing and bitching than straight up stand up anymore. If you watch it, there are far fewer punchlines and much more just general irritation. So comedy is very, it's, it's a very specialized way of talking for human beings. And I, I typically, it's not that I resist it being used rhetorically because I use comedy as rhetoric. 
Like I use it to do information, especially like when I bring conservatives on my show and I do conversions. I use a lot of comedy because it makes them feel comfortable and it, it lowers the stakes. And suddenly we're, we're having fun instead of fighting each other. You know? And those are all comedy techniques, but it's really just a specialized way that I use comedy. It's not, I don't expect comedy hmm. to do that for me all the time. How many conservatives have you converted then, would you say? Oh, every conservative I talk to, I convert. Yeah. It's not a full conversion but I will move them a few centimeters towards a direction I want them to move. I, the interesting thing is like, again, with the book, the reason why I split persuasion so strongly into different areas, it's because when you ask me about conversion, like I'm really trying to do relationship persuasion with conversions because I've seen this over and over again, the strongest way to convert somebody out of a political perspective is to let them create relationships with people who are their villains and they can't hold on to their hate, their judgment, their negative evaluation. Once they get in and like, Oh, I kind of like this guy. I kind of like this trans person or this poverty, whatever it is that they've been told to hate. If they meet them and, and have a relationship, it converts them off that stance. Yeah. So that's the strongest way to convert somebody from politics. And so even just meeting me and I don't identify as a liberal, like I identify as a comedian. <laughs> no, I would choose that as my political persuasion as well, if that's an option. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You know, I, I, the only reason I really like liberals better than conservatives is they laugh much easier. Oh, my God. Conservatives don't like to. They're so triggery. It's no fun. <laughs> yeah, that, that's somewhat true in the UK now as well. Although I don't think it quite used to be. I, I think they used to be able to find some humour and perhaps even laugh at themselves a bit. And now it's now uh, similar things have been happening in the UK where like satire and stuff is been attacked. Like there was a fairly popular satire show that was running. I've, I've had one of the guys who was on it on as a guest as well on the show. It's called The Mash Report. It was a great little show, but it was. I guess it came across as being left wing and and it, it got pulled because the the government have a lot of sway with the BBC, everyone's having the BBC, right? Uh, and so because of that, this show got ended up getting cancelled. And uh, and it seems that you know, they're really doing some bits to try and quiet dissent. And, and I was actually watching uh, YouTube videos where someone was talking about that, uh, that Trump had been investigating the possibilities of having the DOJ investigating certain late night comedians that he didn't like about whether they could prosecute them. It's definitely a, a dodgy dictator kind of move to try and silence any sort of political dissent or opposition. Uh, and they were talking about this comedian in Egypt who's ha now had to exile, be exiled to LA. You may, you may be aware of who, who he is. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but because he was uh, satirizing the powers that be in Egypt, they came after him and he had to leave and he still can't go back there. But it seems that comedy itself has a lot of power, but people don't like being challenged uh, and the political figures spouting the rhetoric, but they, they want the free speech, but they're actually silencing it in other people. They say they're all about free speech, but they want everyone else to shut up. Right. And that's unethical. So yeah. there you go. It, you know, all these issues, they, they like to me, one of the dominant terms that explains modern rhetoric is conflation. Everything gets conflated together and we have such a hard time extracting it to be able to think our way through it. So freedom of speech, like Trump supposedly is now going to uh, 
sue Twitter and Facebook for <laughs> pulling him off their, off their platform. Uh-huh. And, and they keep claiming free speech. Well, that's why I said free speech. Free speech needs some work. It needs some rhetoric work done on it to define it because it shouldn't be free speech. It should be, it's not free hate speech. It's not free to say unethical things. It's not free to lie, but that's the way it's being used. And so everybody's, well, you can't restrict it. I'm like, yeah, you can. Sure you can. We have this huge technology. We're incredibly advanced. You can't tell me we can't actually look at things and do some good trimming of it. We're not at the mercy of the language. The language is at our mercy. So do some actual work on it. Again, it's the rhetorician thing. Rhetoricians would be like, one of my taglines for what I do with rhetoric warriors is complicated times require sophisticated techniques. And we haven't kept up. This idea of free speech has not been turned into free speech 2.0. Democracy hasn't been turned into democracy 2.0. And it needs it. Like it has all these vulnerabilities because it was made 250 years ago or whatever in America. And so it's a vulnerable system. And all the right is doing is exploiting the vulnerabilities in the system. So fix them and you'll get rid of these nefarious people and the power that they can grab. And they keep trying to stop you from fixing it because then they'll be out of power. Of course. Yeah, yeah. So the will isn't there to change the change the political systems, which are all clearly broken because so many of these corrupt types who are kleptocracy kind of government to who are putting stuff out there and putting out all this harmful rhetoric and division and all that, they're, they're too easily in power. And in, in the UK, the government there has a ridiculous majority because people have bought into it and, and bought into all this rhetoric. And I guess also in the lack of strong opposition as well, is that the opposition hasn't really done a very good job of combating any of that. And I think that they could be a lot better on it. But uh, yeah, it's probably just as true here in Spain, although most of other parts of Europe and many other parts of the world now seeing more coalition governments, which maybe maybe a better thing where yeah maybe that maybe that's part of the democratic answer i tell people all the time like i just started this brand six months ago during the pandemic where i could lift all this stuff out of academics and out of all the work i did for all these years teaching it over into a public format that is more adapted it's at least adapted to podcasting it's not quick it's not completely adapted yet to like quick media like twitter and instagram and things like that which wants consumption messages like really short and and singular, but training people, even the left, training Democrats, training the left against nefarious, unethical persuasion is not an easy thing. It's not easy to fight this. And they're not ready. They are not trained. They are not rhetoricians. They're politicians. And so they keep going back to trying to use the same things they've always used. And that stuff can be blown up so easily. Like the only reason Biden really got elected here is because he had 40 years of history and he's a white guy, he's male, he's super familiar, everybody knows the brand. So all the people that on the right couldn't hate him as much as they Mm. could hate Hillary. So the hate factor went down to 20% because they didn't know how to hate that guy. Right. And so, but how do you fight hate? I mean, that's different than fighting political ideologies. Just sheer hate. And you've watched them do it now. Like they turned it on Fauci. They've turned it on Biden and the Biden hate factor is starting to go up because those techniques are super powerful, partly because they're good at it and partly because we don't know how to fight it. Even if you just turn the fire hose around and pointed at Trump, 
and just use the things that the right hates and just say it about Trump. Like they, they pick the wrong things. Like calling Trump a fascist or a dictator or things like that, the right doesn't even understand what that means. So it's really not that strong. And they don't care. Like yeah. They would be perfectly fine turning these governments to fascists if the fascism was, it was Christian, it was organized you know, around what they want. They'd be, they'd be fine with that. We don't need elections, just we need the right people in power. So yeah. calling things that they hate, like, what do they hate? Well, they hate overeducated people. I'm still surprised. Trump's such an interesting guy, but him being a New Yorker and the fact that the South loves him is amazing. Rich boy, New Yorker. If they'd have just kept hitting him with that. Yeah, although it seems there are some revelations that he may not be quite so rich after all. <laughs> yeah, but none of it matters. Again, they, they don't, they're okay. not using logic. So it doesn't matter yeah. whether it is or isn't. Like, they're listening to stories. So just put a big thing on there. Trump hates Jesus. Right. Like, Trump is a Jesus hater. And again, propaganda and rhetoric is will tell you, repeat. Repeat that over and over again. It makes no difference whether it's true or not. Yeah. And it will start to rise up as a belief, and then it'll hurt Trump. Yeah, there have been quite a lot of people who are saying Trump is probably really an atheist or doesn't really believe in anything. But yeah, again, that maybe just hasn't been enough of it or hasn't been repeated enough. It needs to be in the public discourse. And that does seem to be something that particularly the right wing does do very well about keeping that discourse going, keeping those, they're controlling the talking points and the language that's being used, the hyperbole that's going into it as well. I, I took an interesting program that went back. It was like an audio course. It was really a, an audio book that, is no longer available as, as, as a proper course, but you may have heard of it. It's called Away With Words. It was uh, Professor Drab. It's a course on rhetoric, particularly, and it's, it's available on, on Audible. That's where, where I heard it. And he was talking about some of the things like, one of the things I found particularly interesting was saying that particular rhetorical devices, when overused, people do start to become immune to it. It weakens them and they're not so effective anymore. Things like the tricolon, for example, you know, the, the three uh, power of three thing that if it's overused, people get a bit like, oh God, another one of those. It loses a lot of impact and power. What are your thoughts perhaps on the effectiveness or the perhaps some of the differences of where you see rhetoric going, like what's changing there, what was effective before isn't so much now? I start the book with this kind of five level separation of rhetoric into like theory, strategy, tactics, situations, and then specifics. So specifics are the micro techniques when you go all the way down into like that. Like when you repeat things in threes, that's a, it's a thing in comedy. It's a thing in the human brain. Our short-term memory can hold about three things. And so that typically is a good pattern if you're going to be using messaging on humans. But take the insult thing. So Trump is a insult person, like he insults. That's one of his techniques. Yeah. And he knows that insults only last a couple of days, two or three days. So he'll change his target every two or three days. And then once people forget the insult, he'll pull one thing out of that insult and circle back and just reuse it every once in a while. So if we know that Trump is an insulter, I used to call him the insulter in chief. That's what he does. Yeah. Well, how do you counteract insults? The rhetorician in me is, okay, great. I've now identified one of this guy's tactics. I need a counter program to that tactic. So I think if Hillary Clinton had just hired a really good insult comic to uh, give her some good lines for the debates, she'd have probably won. 
Yeah. Who, in your opinion, would be a good insult comic for her to have hired? Oh, my God. There's so many. There's a guy here, Dave Attell, who is just, I used to call him the filthy poet. Just a master of these really sharp one-liners. And that's what you want. And if you just hired that guy, look, we want 300 hardcore insults about Trump. And then you just aren't Biden or whoever going out there with fresh insults. It would decimate him because he's not used to being insulted by an artist. Yeah. He's used to being insulted by people who aren't good at insulting. Hillary Clinton tried to insult his followers and it was the right. clumsiest insult. Basket of deplorables. That was pretty poor. Yeah. Yes. Basket of deplorables. What the, that sounds like it came from the middle ages. Like <laughs> who uses the word deplorable? anymore why a basket it's just a weird image it's a horrible insult i'm like that guy sitting standing right next to you is so insultable there's so many things about him that you could insult yeah and, and, so and it was so tame yeah it was so tame that they were they were using it as a badge of honor they that people were changing their profiles to deplorable right yeah they pulled it down after a while that's the other thing about rhetoric is like it can re-inhabit symbols symbols are really hard to control Mm. Even like the right has taken all the democratic symbols, like the flag and colors and all this stuff, and they've turned them into hate symbols. Like they drive around in the trucks and as soon as you see, oh, that person is a horrible person, which is a crazy thing to do with America's primary symbols, but they've done mm. it. So there's always this fight about defining symbols, which is another area of rhetoric, definitions. But just insults, just, hey, if you know you're going up against an insult, you better get ready to defend those insults. Biden just ignored them for the most part. But he could do that because he already had a bunch of rhetorical ethos. And there wasn't that much to insult about Biden. Now they're insulting him about his cognitive abilities because he's old. And that's the only thing they've been kind of been able to make stick. Right. <laughs> Although he still seems much more cognitively capable than the, the main opposition. Um, it's interesting. He's saying about the symbols. I remember doing my English degree, signs, symbols, signifiers, semiotics. That is related to rhetoric as well. Though. Yeah. Again, rhetoric was the fount. It was the original fleur-de-lis. It was like it created all of the stuff. And all these other academic areas have come up to rediscover what the Greeks were talking about 2,500 years ago. And semiotics, the splitting of language and all that stuff, you can find most of that in Greek writings. The idea of what are words and what are they constructed of and what do they do and how do you take control of that? That's all rhetoric. And you came up with, through the, through the academy, like the Russian structuralist and then the semiologists and all these different people breaking the sign apart, and breaking the word apart. It's all been done in rhetoric. You just didn't read it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, to different areas, the left hand not knowing what the right hand's doing, right? Interesting stuff. I know we need to start wrap, wrapping things up pretty soon, but it's been a, a great introduction to some people to rhetoric and understanding how it applies to their life. It's part of everything. It's everywhere. You can't really avoid it. Knowing what it is and perhaps knowing how to use it, do you think it is a, a critical skill for public speakers or just a nice to have? Rhetoric is the super technology. I tell people it's the original human software. Maybe logic is first, language, maybe language is first, first. <clears throat> but right after that, it's how do you use language to get what you want? And that's the real question that rhetoric is answering for you. It's like when we talk to people, we want something. We want things to happen. Even if we're trying to get them to smile back at us and have a pleasant conversation, you're trying to make that happen. 
So every time we talk, we're really being rhetorical. And so when you train people about rhetoric, everybody's worried about it going over into manipulation, which sure. is just a it's just a piece of slander about rhetoric because everybody's afraid of rhetoric. Why shouldn't you understand how rhetoric works? It's the original software for creating good relationships, for transferring information well, for taking care of other people, for being ethical. It does really great stuff. And that's why I teach the white arts of rhetoric. Like here are all the great things rhetoric does. Yes, you can pull it over into the dark side and it will do all those things too, but it only does those if you let it. Right. If you don't understand rhetoric and it's against you, well, guess whose fault it really is? It, yeah. It's your fault. You know, right. defend yourself. I have I have a talk that I've delivered a few times now. It's, it's called Defense Against the Dark Arts of Persuasion. But I like that. I think I'm going to have to uh, add something in there now about the uh, the white arts of rhetoric. I, I like that. I, I really like that. I will credit you for sure. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. Where can people come and find out more about you and more about rhetoric? What's the best way for them to do that? Rhetoric Warriors, the site is the major location. And then I, I have all the podcasts. I have 75 episodes up on YouTube and all the platforms. And that's really the best way. It's all free information. I'm going to launch a rhetoric boot camp, like a hardcore training around the, the book, because the book is essentially, it's a quick introduction to an arena. So like when I talk about logic in there, I could write three books about logic. There's so much stuff inside of logic. And, but people don't have time for that. So I'm just trying to get you oriented in that. And so I may do a rhetoric boot camp about each week. I'm going to launch into a different arena and really drag people through it if you want to learn this stuff. Because learning 10% of something in this stuff is a bad idea. Because right. then you're going to launch in and you're going to be up against somebody that's good at it. And you're going to get shredded. So rhetoric is it's a battle. That's one of the primary metaphors for And That's why I chose Coliseums. Because you're in there and if your uncle or your dad or whatever and you can't talk to them or your aunt or somebody has gone off the deep end or like me, I have a 21 year old daughter's millennial and I've had to really work in order to be able to communicate well with her because she's so easily triggered. And I'm a comedian. Comedians do what I like to call stomping through the minefield in clown shoes. If they find something that's triggerable, they want to explore that energy. Yeah. And my daughter doesn't like that. So we've had to work at it. But I've got techniques to make adjustments so that I don't just trigger her and, and ruin the relationship. Whereas most people just avoid the topic. They stop trying to persuade, which is a horrible idea because now that person gets to go out and vote. You need to control the way other people vote. That is your responsibility. You need to influence it and get it into the right modality. And if you're on the right and you're like, hey, I think the right is the way to do this. I'm like, great. Use ethical techniques and jump in there. But if you want to use unethical techniques, I'm going to fight you every single centimeter you try to move. Yeah. So. Bring some honor back into the system. And uh, that, that's definitely a good thing. I, I love that. I, I would certainly be interested in taking a course like that myself. Uh, but in the meantime, people can arm themselves with 21 Colosseums of persuasion. And uh, it is a great read. And, uh, you know, I haven't completed it yet but I'm, I'm enjoying it and i'm learning a lot from you and i certainly look forward to learning more from you as well in the future and this has been a really delightful journey into rhetoric and hopefully a, a good intro a good a good revisor for people who are already a bit familiar with it i, I want to ask you are there any other books or resources that you would recommend i think i will sort of give it to more about perhaps rhetoric or logic that you think people should uh, check out 
Somebody asked me this recently. I think most of the problem with rhetoric is that it's either deep academics or it's textbooks. There aren't a lot of good mid-ground sources, and that's one of the reasons why I started writing some of this stuff. If you want to go to the original Aristotle, the rhetoric, it's deep, it's intricate, it's hard to follow, it's got a lot of stuff in there, but it's great. And then recently, Cialdini, I think, has a good review book. It's a good review of, of persuasion. So I think it's a really interesting book. And if you want to read fun stuff, like really good philosophy written by a guy who's so smart and such a great writer, but he's super academic, sorry, Kenneth Burke is the primary saint of rhetoric for many, many people in the rhetoric field. And he has books like Permanence and Change. It's one of my favorite books, Attitudes Towards History. He has probably 10 or 12 books that are just amazing. And I, when I read them, it takes me so long because every paragraph has five ideas in it that I'm like, oh, I got to learn this. I got to remember this. Excellent. Yeah, I definitely like the sound of that. It's going on to my reading list. It will be in there. I look forward to checking that out uh, as well as reading more from you. Dan, Dan, it's been a real pleasure speaking to you. What would you like to leave you with? There's at least maybe one thing that people take away from this that you'd like to leave in people's minds. What would it be? It's okay to persuade people. You should learn it. You should take responsibility for it. It's not unethical. It's not manipulation. It's absolutely necessary if you're going to be happy, if you're going to be successful in business, if you're going to create a good politics, if you have a social issue that you want to push, learn how to persuade. Just yelling at people and being expressive and passionate does nothing. Add, add some you know, sophistication and some learning so that you can be effective. And the more effective you are getting good things in the world, then the better the world is for all of us. So I encourage you to learn more rhetoric. I certainly will be. I hope other people will be as well. Take up the challenge and let us know how you do. Tell us how you get on with your journey into rhetoric as well. Dan, for me, this has been a real treat because I love rhetoric and it's been a delight to speak to someone who has expertise in this. And uh, I've learned a lot from this. I hope other people have as well. Thank you so much for coming and being my guest on Speaking Influence. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, please make sure you put something into action that you learned here today. And of course, subscribe to the show if you haven't already done so. If you'd like to support the show, one of the best ways for you to do that is to share our episodes with your network. Now, of course, share the episodes that you love, perhaps more than the ones that you don't. But word of mouth makes a huge difference to us. And you can now support the show financially as well, even just by buying me a coffee. For five US dollars a month, you can help make the Speaking Influence podcast an even bigger and better show. There's also a membership level where you can get exclusive access to our live stream recordings to be in the virtual studio with us and exclusive Q&A time with our show guests, as well as advanced information of the shows and guests that are coming up. To do that, visit the Supercast page in the show notes or in the YouTube description. For now, see you next time and go and make great things happen.